What's happening, ladies and germs? Welcome to Man's Blogcast, a weekly podcast where I study a topic and abstract useful information and strategies to help you overcome obstacles, both inner and outer. This week we're looking at loneliness again because it's just such a massive topic. I tried to do it all last week and it was just... Kept thinking of new things, how loneliness ties into alienation, ties into feeling separate from your culture, from feeling isolated, not just physically, but also spiritually, as in that you're not part of anything larger than yourself, any sort of continuum. So, yeah, it touches on a lot of different areas, which we're going to develop more in this blogcast. So, without further ado, let's get into it, baby. Uh, there's the intro by Chris Bent. Let's go. Boom. So I want to talk today about loneliness, which has been compared to the pandemic as an epidemic of loneliness. When I'd work in call centres, that's kind of when it drove home to me the situation that some people were living in. I myself had always felt a sort of lingering sense of loneliness. I think trying to get rid of it as a young person, oftentimes you sacrifice a lot to the social group. It kind of made you very willing to compromise your own morals to try and be a part of things so you wouldn't actually be alone. It's something I write quite a lot about in my play waiting for the offer it's kind of the overarching theme of it really is bad behavior and the desire for love when i'd work in a call center i'd get calls from old people all the time and they'd stay on the phone for ages chatting with you and you'd have a bit of a chat with them and stuff and you know you're always kind of wondering why people were so willing to chat and then i remember one elderly person in particular had said to me that I was the only person that they'd spoken to all week other than their TV and calls after that started to feel very different I started to see more how people were so isolated already and this was pre-pandemic for older people I think it's a different sort of loneliness to younger people it's what I'm calling objective loneliness It's like in Japan where you have, um, they have 60,000 people over 100 years old in Japan. They have a a massively aging population and so many of them are so isolated that there's these old ladies that will go out and start shoplifting to get sent to prison just for a bit of a sense of community. They'd actually rather be in jail than on their own. I don't know, is this down to just people living longer and then you become separated from your family? that we don't maintain familial connections as much as we did before. Maybe it's just the way that we live in apartment blocks, separate houses that are quite anonymous. We kind of always have our own spaces and then communal areas are treated with a certain amount of suspicion or, during the pandemic anyway, a complete disregard. I think we do have a sense that at some point it wasn't like this, that there was sometime in the past where people were much more open, much more willing to be around one another, much more connected. 
my dad even says that about growing up in the 70s in Belfast and the 70s in Belfast was a pretty wild time but he still says that there was more of a sense of community I do feel that in Belfast more than there is in Dublin Dublin feels very much like a metropolitan city now in the sense that it's kind of lost its identity it's trying to get all these hotels and constantly get business going but it I just feel like it doesn't have that much to barter with I'm putting everybody under terrible strain but this type of loneliness the old Japanese lady shoplifting to find some friends is objective loneliness it's actually not having anybody around which is certainly what we're all having to deal with at the moment in enforced solitude solitude can be very meaningful it can be a time where you really get in touch with your own core values you figure out what it is that you can do without anybody else that feels meaningful and it can be a very useful time but also I think it's something that people try and escape from because if you haven't chosen a direction for yourself if you haven't picked one of your own accord or done let's say the work necessary to figure out what is meaningful to you what does matter why you are alive on this earth is a pretty good question to be uh, pursuing then solitude forces you to confront that fact that maybe you don't really know what you're doing I've kind of experienced that myself I've kind of realized that I've been pursuing so many goals as a way of almost keeping things in the fog as a way of not sacrificing the goals that are less important and trying to play for it all reading the book the effective executive at the moment and he recommends that for effective work you should actually only really concentrate on one thing at a time to give yourself fully to it there were so much not masters in our own house and such a such a cauldron of competing desires that really to get yourself fully in line you need one target a single-minded goal that you should be pursuing so for older people it's this objective loneliness the lack of anybody around Um, For young people, though, interestingly, 80% of young people report feeling lonely sometimes and actually seem to be the next most highly affected group, which skips middle-aged people who aren't particularly lonely, um, according to the statistics, anyway. And, yeah, why, why would young people be so lonely? That's a time when you have more friends than you ever will. Honestly, I mean, it seems that growing up is a process of actually just losing touch with people, which is quite sad and can be difficult to bear sometimes when you're used to having such a large pool of friends and really living and growing up with your friends. I mean, in Dublin, we were always in a group. That's what you did every day. You woke up, you went and you called for your mates and you got in trouble or you kicked a football or you did whatever, but it was always group activities and then when you start to grow up and become an individual you have to leave that group behind and it can be a a very uncomfortable time I think when you're trying to figure out who you are and there's very little support structures in our society for that process of maturation because there's so much confusion about who people should be and this is something I will deal with later on but When I was younger, um, I felt very lonely. I felt alienated, would be the word. 
Um, I distinctly remember one time in particular when I was, I don't know where I was coming home from, but I was walking across the green at the top of my estate and just looking around at all the small suburban houses and the church would have been at the top of the green, which was nearly within you know spitting distance of my house. And that I was alienated from from the community, from the religion, from my friends, from my family, that I was just, I felt like I didn't have a connection to anything. I felt like a little existential philosopher, a little Jean-Paul Sartre at the age of 14. And that's not the way it should be. That Those questions are too big for children to be dealing with. That's kind of my big bugaboo with my parents, with their kind of philosophy of they their decision was that will be atheists so that they can make up their own mind i've now spent 26 years thinking about it non-stop and realized that it's actually too complicated i mean i'm at least as trained as you can be as a thinker short of a phd and they're the most complicated questions that have ever existed in the face of the earth how the hell are we expecting everybody to make up their mind on that it's crazy. Um, we're, that's why we're breeding people that are having existential crises, because we're not actually built to ask these questions constantly. We need to be embedded within a grand narrative, a meta-narrative that contextualizes our experience and gives meaning to it. This is something I will, I will deal with later. Um, a, a grand narrative is a interpretation of life which we can which you essentially live inside, and we haven't had one. We've had competing ones. I mean, capitalism, communism, these are all competing grand narratives, and in some sense, they're secular grand narratives. That would have been Nietzsche's argument that after the death of God, we were condemned to these competing grand narratives, because prior to that, they had a single narrative which they were living inside, and which actually allowed for a very meaningful life, even if you were living, you know, you're a medieval peasant that's just spending your whole life building some fucking cathedral that you're never even going to step inside because it's going to take 300 years. But that laying each brick could be as meaningful work as anything anybody's ever experienced because of the framework that they existed within of belief. And the price we pay for our rational thinking is this level of alienation. So... Yeah, the problem is diagnosed, I think, by Hunter S. Thompson in this quote, which I will read to you now. In a society with no central motivation, so far adrift and puzzled with itself, that its president feels called upon to appoint a committee on national goals, a sense of alienation is likely to be very popular, especially among people young enough to shrug off the guilt they're supposed to feel for deviating from a goal or purpose they never understood in the first place. Let the old people wallow in the shame of having failed. The laws they made to preserve a myth are no longer pertinent. The so-called American way begins to seem like a dike made of cheap cement, with many more leaks than the law has fingers to plug. America has been breeding mass anonymy since the end of World War II. It is not a political thing, but the sense of new realities or urgency. Anger and sometimes desperation in a society where even the highest authorities seem to be grasping at straws. I think this is particularly pertinent considering the whole storming the Capitol building thing where we see seemingly the left wing and right wing 
in American politics absolutely losing their minds. Some of it's spilling over into Ireland as well. I really wish that we had, say, a greater focus on Irish politics as separated from American politics because I just don't know how they how they're even going to function at this point. Um, Hunter S. Thompson wrote this about America in the 70s, but I think that's an accurate diagnosis of the problem of Western society in general. The obvious answer for the epidemic of loneliness is the lack of socializing. Though we used to have bigger families, live in close communities, no internet, and spend a lot of quality time together. And now at the moment, of course, we've all been forced to stay home and essentially prison and be socially isolated. This is definitely a huge part of it and can't really be understated. I mean, you're not going to be able to connect with people if you can't see people. It's really, it does seem to be that simple. But the problem is it creates a positive feedback loop whereby your isolation makes it more difficult to connect properly with people. So then when you are with people, you're actually less likely to expose yourself, which is necessary for intimacy. So this part of the loneliness problem is what I'm calling the subjective loneliness or personal loneliness, which comes from being unable to communicate effectively shared ideals, which we all hold to be true. The subjective part of modern loneliness is a lack of a shared goal and definition of what it is to be a human being. This leads to what I've called cultural loneliness, which has been called the crisis of meaning or the void, which is the desire we feel to be connected to something larger than ourselves and our own mind, which would make our lives meaningful. The solution to the loneliness problem lies in a quote from Carl Jung. Loneliness does not come from having no people about one, but from being unable to communicate things that seem important to oneself or from holding certain views which others find inadmissible. We've grown up in a time of ever-increasing political polarisation. I never thought about that. I know there was war generations, like my grandparents who grew up at the Second World War and would have had stories about it, like my granddad remembering Belfast being bombed, even though his memories were fairly suspect. But our generation actually are a war generation. We're a, a war of ideas. This has been going on since World War II, and we don't even realize it. I mean, I just thought, growing up, I knew something was conceptually wrong. I didn't know what it was, but I just had a, a sense that our, there was something else that we were thinking about, that growing up, we should have had a clear-cut map of how, how you act. And it seemed to me that other people, my friends who were in the parish, still had a map. They still had at least a certain sense of what they were supposed to be doing. Whereas in my family, where I was born, with this kind of beginning off with non-belief, it also seemed to have a knock-on effect of not knowing how to progress, not having an ideal to develop towards. And by extension, I was philosophically vulnerable, like a lot of young people are today. It's obviously gotten even worse because of technology now, so young people are completely under the gaze of one another. It is with the invention of smartphones and social media for sharing things all the time, you're kind of always being watched. I mean, 
you could be filmed at any time that can be distributed instantly to the entire world and you could end up on the front cover of every newspaper it doesn't really seem to matter if you're a celebrity or not you can be we're still all under the microscope at all times and for young people who are working with limited information as we all are but particularly when you're growing up you you have to try things out you really have to make you have to follow your hypothesis test it out see how it goes trial and error that's becoming more difficult for them so they're having to cling to whatever ideals there are in the society which is just literally political correctness pretty much and a sort of vague woke ideology which allows for some of that meta-narrative quality as in it tells you how to behave that's the fundamental problem of being a human being we are always confronted with this unknown with the possibility of potential and we have to somehow act in the face of it so we do need some sort of philosophy that helps structure that at the moment the i think the secular one that you fall into that i fell into anyway was the wokeness social justice kind of thing um i was actually going to do a degree in social justice at one point um because obviously who doesn't want justice for people it seemed like completely self-evident that that was a good thing to be doing i cared about people i cared about people having the best lives i'm very compassionate and that was kind of the obvious outlet for that compassion which i had and that desire for people to be free and to be understood but it actually prevented me from overcoming my own flaws it had me focus more on the flaws of the world to focus on the flaws of systems which i didn't understand to focus on the flaws of other people particularly people who are in positions of power and responsibility who i had really no insight into to be honest with you having had no actual responsibility in my life i had no idea what it would be like to be those people so you just have kind of a vague caricature of them as bad guys and as other things and it was kind of i mean fed into probably by the time that i grew up in the 2008 financial crash has definitely caused a huge wave in ireland of distrust of globalization and not just financial institutions but also institutions in general i think at the moment in the world the even the idea of institutions being trustworthy at all is is very suspect but that's probably a different article loss of faith in the institutions but um yeah the long memory of technology has sped up the problem so for young people they're painfully aware of the consequences of saying something that doesn't fit in there's massive social cost to becoming a black sheep so that that imposes limits on communication and there's a lot of things about people that are messy we have a lot of these desires and secrets and stories and things that aren't don't necessarily you know they're not always going to go all smoothly it's not always going to be that you know they're they're really on the on the beat of the stories but you so you can say things that go the wrong way and we're all quite different and really every person is a culture of their own because we all have different temperaments and those temperaments are fundamentally different ways of looking at the world they're kind of bets on perception which is a little bit more complicated than that but 
it, it is a good thing to know that each person is coming from a different place and it's only through honest conversation that we actually get some clarity of picture and the limits that are being imposed by political correctness cancel culture by the harsh judgment of other people really create a culture of fear that makes intimacy between people nearly impossible unless i suppose you have close friends who you can trust which is god the most valuable resource in the world you take care of those people because those people are you know i don't think it's possible to survive without that and that's why i always try and offer that to people to always be a friend and to always be understanding of people even in compromised situations because you know who the hell am i i've done stupid things i've made mistakes if you keep that in your mind and you you're aware of the times where you failed you're much more understanding of other people um i think you get more understanding as you get older because you just have more experience to draw on and you understand the complexity of life a little bit more so you're willing to listen to people and give them the benefit of the doubt because none of us are perfect we all need forgiveness as they say somewhere i'm not really sure where but <laughs> so this is kind of about ineffective conversation that's the real problem uh, incurable small talk and i'm not one of those people that denigrates small talk really i think small talk has a very important social vetting uh, role which is that if somebody can do the small talk you can go on to the big talk so i'm not one of those people that's like oh no i don't want to talk about the weather it's like well we all share the weather that's something we all have in common and it it can be meaningful if you care about it as well part of the dance i think getting past that to deeper relationships to something that will really nourish you um requires effective conversation and what effective conversation is about is saying what you believe there's a risk to it first of all there's a couple of smaller parts which is that you have to actually know what you believe you have to listen to yourself they say think before you speak but i think my philosophy at the moment is feel before you speak jordan peterson's idea is don't say things that make you weak so you should feel into your body when you speak feel into your gut feel your legs feel your shoulders and feel how the things that you're saying are either aligning or pulling you apart this is something i learned from my godfather uh the the great and holy uh brendan who has always been such an inspiration to me um when it comes to speech and wisdom and learning he always had this control of his diction at any dinner table and sometimes he would just stop and you'd be like what is going on what what is this where is he and it was like he was the way i always imagine it in my mind is like that you have like a wallet inside of you or a purse and it's like you're rooting around inside the wallet for the right word so you stop and you listen but you search at the same time and in there is the the correct phrase that requires a certain level of introspection and self-awareness and communication because you're trying to actually release something you don't just have instant access to everything that's inside of you um you have to do a bit of detective work bit of inner exploration to get to the root of what you actually think what you actually believe it also requires a certain amount of courage because there's every chance that what you say will not go down well and you got to be willing to risk that to communicate effectively really it comes down to 
bravery. And I think oftentimes, if you're careful with how you say things, if you say things in such a way that you're not trying to cause offense or trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but actually out of curiosity to genuinely express yourself, people are a lot more receptive to that because we're all trying to do that. We're all trying to figure out who we are and what's going on inside of us. And that's actually something that unites us. You can create a space with that sort of attitude that is safe, whereby you are exploring something rather than in combat. I think part of this problem of subjective loneliness and inefficient conversation is also divorce. So you have nearly 60% of marriages ending up in divorce. And in families with a lot of turmoil, uh, walking on eggshells is the norm. Divorces occur because of unsolvable problems and dilemmas. So you have a lot of young people growing up in homes where problems aren't being solved and where there is, let's say, a dragon under the floorboards. That's the prevailing metaphor for unsolved problems in the subconscious. You can become very used to this mode of operating. It almost feels normal to walk on eggshells and you're, your bandwidth for ignoring your own subjective discomfort isn't very well regulated. You're basically, you'll, you're attracted to what you're used to. So if you're used to a situation with a lot of unresolved conflict and internal discomfort, if you then have relationships with people, friendships, you know, intimate relationships that make you uncomfortable, you oftentimes won't think that's anything out of the norm. You can actually continue in relationships that are very toxic, that have become um, compromised because you're actually just used to feeling that way. Getting in touch with your feeling again, getting in touch with that inner information that's saying to you, is this good, is this bad? A good thing to note is that feelings aren't directions. Feelings are information. So what you have to do is listen to your feelings and then decide on a direction based on them, based on your principles, based on your values, based on the information coming from your feelings. You shouldn't just, every feeling that pops up in your head isn't telling you what to do. It's just telling you something. So it might be telling you that you're angry. It might be telling you that you're annoyed. But you'd have to interrogate it and find out, why am I angry? What am I annoyed about exactly? Is it me? Is it the way I'm connecting my thoughts to this situation? Is it the situation itself? Do I actually have access to the situation or am I too emotional about it? I would recommend if you struggle with this, if you struggle with your emotions and with your judgment, um, investing in reading some Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius is very good for this, as well as Seneca, and a very interesting intermediate of these ideas, who's also a CBT professor, is a guy called Donald Robertson, who connects Stoicism and CBT together Interestingly, from martial arts, I kind of think I cultivated stoicism without ever actually learning stoicism. We have an idea in ninjutsu, which is sorrow, pain, and resentment are natural qualities to be found in life. Therefore, work to cultivate an immovable spirit. That immovable spirit is very central to martial arts that you, despite situations that are uncomfortable, frightening, whatever it is, that those are just the situations and what goes on inside of you is actually under your control. You can set your own expectations, you can set your own attitudes um, and that that is the best strategy for surviving the painful side of life, 
the side of life that can really get under your skin. So lack of effective communication skills and effective conflict resolution in families and in wider society. Obviously, we're seeing the lack of effective conflict resolution in wider society. I mean, social media is just like, wow. I mean, can you even go on the Facebook comments section for more than 30 seconds without losing your mind? I don't think there's any good solution to it, so I'm just trying to stay away from it. If you can't, uh, if you can't master your emotions in that area, which I certainly can't, I think the best thing to do is abstain and focus on other things. So loneliness always involves some level of feeling rejection. You wouldn't be lonely if you'd chosen to be on your own. It's a, it always involves wanting company. And sometimes, I mean, a lot of the time we do. We're social creatures. We're designed to eat together, to live together, to be part of a close-knit tribe. I mean, we outsource our sanity to other people. If you're alone for too long, you will lose your mind eventually. You actually, the way you think about the world is constantly calibrated by other people's responses to you. So if you tell a joke and nobody laughs, you have to go, oh, okay, what is going on there? Am I off the mark? Because we're constantly trying to get past our perceptions to an accurate picture of reality, but that actually happens in interaction. We have all these blind spots and things we don't see about ourselves. We can become, you know, unbelievably strange, but all that takes is for somebody else to go, yeah, you're being really weird. And then you go, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. You've given me something to reflect on and work with. Solitude has very negative side effects after a long time. It can really distort your view of reality. I think we see that happening quite a lot at the moment where the internet is become is playing that role that other people usually play of advising you about the holes in your perspective. So one way to look at solitude that is more powerful is not as a rejection, not as a punishment, but as a factory for growth and development. I really spend a huge amount of my time alone. The activities that I do, reading, writing, training, are often done alone. And I think if you can learn to take them seriously when nobody's watching, that's when you can really start to develop. It's easy to do something when other people are around encouraging you, but to cultivate a sense of inner motivation when nobody's around is really the skill that will take you through life. That way you don't have to rely on anybody else whipping you up or anybody else, you know, setting the standard. You have set the standard for yourself and that is an amazing resource to have because it also translates to everywhere. There's nowhere that you can't employ that skill in your life. You can do it in relationships, in your job, in a passion, in whatever it is. So developing a sense of inner motivation in solitude, which I think a lot of people have done. Um, even you see people walking more, doing yoga, just embracing new routines, but also setting the pace themselves. Homeworking is, is kind of like that, where you have to set up your own space and self-motivate. You're not going to get the bonuses of other people around you and work encouraging you. So it's a very powerful skill that can have knock-on effects, I think, for every area of your life. Old stories are full of wise people going into solitude. You probably 
are familiar with him. Some dude in the desert, Jehovah or whoever he was, you know, fucking Jesus. He went out there in the desert for 40 days uh, fighting with the devil. And sure, he came out a made man. That was that was really the, the makings of him. So solitude can be a blessing. It can be a, a source of renewal, a source of power, a source of connection with something larger than yourself, a vision for your life. I've said it a few times during this, but what I would recommend, there's a, a, a blog post by a guy called Taylor Pearson. I think it's called Core Values or Finding Your Core Values. He puts it very well and he presents a list of some 50 values, I think, and a framework whereby you'll narrow them down to your 10 chosen values and then down to five. And what that allows you to do is you've kind of decided what's really important to you then. And this might seem like it doesn't matter, but we actually do so much of our lives on autopilot. Like if you think back on the last week, how much of that was spent in meaningful interaction? Like if you were reflecting on your life on your deathbed, you're not going to care about the times you watch Netflix. You're not going to care about, you know, the Instagram scrolling. What will really matter to you is oftentimes, I mean, the conflicts. But when you were facing adversity, when you actually went against fear rather than just taking a break, watching TV, sitting on the couch, none of these things are going to be reflected on with any great joy. The meaning really does come from facing adversity, not from comfort. Comforting yourself feels good at the time, but its value in the future is next to nothing. Figuring out your core values allows you to engage in more meaningful activity. You figure out what's important to you, and then you make decisions in your life. Should I do this? Should I do that? Check my core values. So it's kind of your roadmap for how to make your life, your activities in your life more meaningful. I think that's a pretty good good way to segue into what I've described as cultural loneliness. I mean, I've heard other people describe it as the crisis of meaning, the void, the problems of figuring out how to act in a secular society that doesn't deal in those kind of truths. So scientific truths are truths about the world. But there's also another kind of truth which perceives the world as a forum for action. The world as a forum for action is the place of religion. I mean, the fundamental questions of religions and philosophies is how do we act? There's been a lot of hypotheses about that. There's, God, how many different religions are there? But they're human universal. These traditions, these paths that allow us to carve out a route because when you're confronted with infinite possibilities, it's very difficult to decide on it. That's why we have social conventions. I mean, they are conventions in the sense that they limit you and they box you into certain paths that you have to take. But life is actually very complicated and we could spend all day sitting around, you know, staring at cups like a baby and we'd never figure it out. But we've developed over time to have technologies like our education system which essentially indoctrinate us into certain cultural worldviews because it's a limiting factor 
the world is infinitely complex so we actually need to pare it down in order to be able to play the game like in a game of chess there's a finite set of rules but there's an infinite number of ways which you can apply them it's the same thing we need rules to the game and that's what the meta narrative is it's an interpretation of being that allows for meaningful experience so i didn't have one of these growing up as an atheist i felt like an outcast Obviously, all my friends were in the church getting baptized, having communions, confirmations, and I was just doing feck all except feeling left out. The reason that I was told this was because that that wasn't true. That was it. I was told that this, that that was bullshit, that it was kind of a fairy tale that powerful people used to control people that weren't particularly literate or use their brains. It was, it was a big lie, basically. The big problem is, though, I grew up with the same secular lie. So my, let's say, belief system was a sort of quasi-scientific rationalism that was really just radical skepticism, the belief in non-belief. And so I would continually saw off the branch I was sitting on and essentially just, you know, float towards mental illness because moral courage requires a moral framework in which to act and these are deep deep questions they're not trivial they're not things you should just hand to children and go here figure this out (laughs) but for some reason we've become so hubristic that we believe that we've mastered everything but we can't even master ourselves we can't even manage to not feel lonely we haven't we haven't mastered anything until we've until we figured out what the story is where it's going that's why we don't have a future in the west at the moment basically we need we need context it's it's too complicated for me to fully articulate yet but this is my goal i actually just bought the domain for grandnarratives.com because it's a question that i think i'm going to do my phd in in philosophy if i can somehow secure some money to do so but it is the question. I think it's what underlies everything else. And you see people running left, right, and center. The interest, the modern interest in stoicism is because it connects you to a tradition which makes you feel that your life is meaningful because meaning only exists across time. We can't just say that the past was a mistake and that everybody was a bunch of idiots before the Enlightenment. It's not, it's not enough. We're creatures of action and we live in a phenomenological world and we need a, a narrative. But we need the right narrative because they're not all correct. Some lead to death, destruction, ruination. Others have better outcomes. It's a, a pragmatic problem, really. Your beliefs can be, I think you can deem them true or false based on the outcome. Evolutionary theory provides the best explanatory framework for human beings and society that I've seen. It makes the most sense, and it has animal models as well, which makes it a lot more compelling. Because human beings, I mean, we've just become so hubristic, really, that we've forgotten that we are animals, and that we have evolved the same way, I mean, much more quickly. But to root the meta-narrative in human nature, an accurate theory of human nature, things that we share this is what the stories are about this is a good way into the past if you want to connect 
with where you've come from and with your culture and feel that sense of meaning. All you need to do is to realize that all of these stories were made by people observing other people. They're early science, really. So what writers do is they watch, they experience, and then they abstract from that experience and observation universal behaviors and patterns. Because human life is something. I mean, we're born, we get older, try and fall in love, we have families, we die. There is, there's variance in it, more so nowadays. It's hemmed in by birth and death, and we all face that problem. We all face the question of how to do something with our lives in that short space of time. And that's what the stories are about. That's what the biblical stories are about. That's what every sort of religion has to tap into, is that universal human story. Aldous Huxley calls it the perennial religion. We've mapped out a lot of the human experience already, and we've just forgotten about it. We've lost it. We've, we've classified them just as stories that are fiction and that aren't real. But fiction is, in a sense, very real. It is based on uh, observation of people, and it records truths that you can't actually get from science. I mean, you can do these large-scale um, psychological studies which create much more reliable information, but there are limits to it, and it takes time, and it's very slow. So I don't think science is going to be able to record the truths that have been encoded in literature any better and they have been recorded there by the great writers of antiquity. And that's why you see a lot of modern psychologists and scientists hearkening back to these ideas. That's why Stoicism has become connected with things like CBT, because we actually figured out a lot of things about how to live and how to be, and those things are still valid, because we are still human beings that live in groups, that have desires, that have motivations that must um, constrain the destructive parts of our nature to have a certain level of peace with one another, to not inflate conflicts, to have laws, to have order rather than chaos. And this is the result of our cultural development. There is universal things that we all do. A true 21st century meta-narrative would need to embrace that universal human nature. This is my solution to cultural loneliness, and it's worked for me. It allowed me a way back into the culture which I was born a stranger from. I don't know how to define myself. I don't know if I'm a religious person, not a religious person. I'm not part of any specific organization, but I do feel part of a larger human tradition. I feel part of a species. In that sense, it allows me to connect with people, no matter who they are, because I know that underneath the differences. We have a lot more in common than we have different.